Alright everybody, welcome back, and in this episode we're going to get into Genesis chapter 38, Judah's sin with Tamar. And we'll just jump into the first five verses. We're going to have Judah and his three sons. And it came to pass at that time that Judah departed from his brothers and visited a certain Adullamite whose name was Hira. And Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. And he married her and went into her. So she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Er. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. And she conceived yet again and bore a son and called his name Shalah. He was at Skizib when she bore him. So this final part of the story provides the significance of the whole account. Judah then left and stayed in Adullam, which was about 15 miles northwest of Hebron, and married a pagan Canaanite woman. This marriage to a Canaanite almost ruined Judah's family. Intermarriage with the Canaanites have been avoided earlier back in Genesis chapter 34, but not here. So through an ungodly and unwise marriage to a Canaanite woman, Judah fathered three sons, Er, Onan, and Shelah. The Canaanite neighbors were rapidly corrupting the family of Israel. Their future looked like a combination of corruption and assimilation. God had a plan to bring them out of Canaan. So Judah, the fourth-born son of Jacob, through Leah, Reuben, Simeon, and Levi were before him. And he had not yet distinguished himself as someone great among his brothers. He was the one who suggested they sell Joseph into slavery in Genesis chapter 37 verse 26 where he said and Judah said unto his brethren what profit is it if we slay our brother and conceal his blood so coming down to verses 6 and 7 we'll have Er's marriage to Tamar and his death then Judah took a wife for Er his firstborn and her name was Tamar but Er Judah's firstborn was wicked in the sight of the Lord and the Lord killed him so it is not surprising that Judah chose a Canaanite wife for his son Er since he himself was married to a Canaanite and so the Lord killed him we're never told what Er's wickedness was, but obviously it was bad enough. God brought immediate judgment upon him. Growing up with a father from such a dysfunctional family and with a mother who was a Canaanite did not help Er to lead a godly life. Coming down to verses 8 through 10, we'll have Onan's refusal to raise up offspring for Tamar. And Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and marry her, and raise up an heir to your brother. But Onan knew that the heir would not be his. And it came to pass, when he went in to his brother's wife, that he admitted on the ground, lest he should give an heir to his brother. And the thing which he did displeased the Lord. Therefore he killed him also. And if I mispronounce any of these names... Or or anything in this old English, forgive me. Uh, I call out the verses before I read them, so just go back and read the verses yourself and get, you should see the text for yourself. Don't just take my word for it. We take the Berean challenge in uh, Acts chapter 17. The Bereans were more noble than that of Thessalonica. They received everything that Paul was saying, but they searched the scriptures daily to prove whether those things were so. And that passage says, don't believe anything Clay Taylor says. Look into the text and find it for yourself. Okay? So, so coming down to verses 8 through 10, um, he said to go into your brother's wife and marry her and raise up an heir to your brother. And according to the custom of Leverite marriage, later codified into law in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 5 through 10, if a man died before providing sons to his wife, it was the duty of his brothers to marry her and to give her sons. The child was considered the son of the brother who died. Onan knew that the heir would not be his. 
because the living brother only acted in his place. This was done so that the dead brother's name would be carried on, but also it was so the widow could have children to support her. Apart from this, she would likely live the rest of her life as a destitute widow. That was just custom of the day back then. So by the custom of the Leverite law of marriage, the second son, Onan, was to marry Tamar, the widow of his brother, and raise up offspring for his brother. However, Onan repeatedly used that law for sexual gratification. He took advantage of the situation, but refused the responsibility that went with it. So God took his life too. And the Leverite marriage is from the Latin word levir, which means husband's brother. It was codified in the Torah in Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 through 10. The role of the goel was as a kinsman redeemer. See Ruth chapters 1 through 4. And the ultimate redemption in Revelation chapter 5. So he went into his brother's wife that he admitted on the ground, lest he should give an heir to his brother. So Onan refused to take responsibility to father descendants for his dead brother seriously. He was more than happy to use Tamar for his sexual gratification, but he did not want to give Tamar a son he had to support, but would be considered to be the son of heir. So Onan pursued sex as only a pleasurable experience. If he really didn't want to father a child by Tamar, he should never have sex with her at all. He refused to fulfill his obligation to his dead brother and Tamar. And many Christians have used this passage as a proof text against masturbation. Indeed, masturbation has been called onanism. However, this does not seem to be the case here. Whatever Onan did, he was not masturbating. This was not a sin of masturbation, but a sin of refusing to care for his brother's widow by giving her offspring. And the sin of a selfish use of sex. It's pretty graphic in those passages. Coming down to verses 11 and 12, Then said Judah to Tamar his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow at thy father's house till Shalom my son be grown. For he said, Lest peradventure he die also, as his brethren did. And Tamar went and dwelt in her father's house, and in process of time the daughter of Sua, Judah's wife, died. And Judah was comforted and went up unto his sheep shears to Timnath, he and his friend Hira the Adolamite. So Shelah was not yet grown up. And even later, when he was, Judah still refused. Sheep shear season, which occurs in Palestine towards the end of March, was spent in more than usual hilarity. And the wealthiest masters invited their friends, as well as treated their servants, to sumptuous entertainments. Accordingly, it is said Judah was accompanied by his friend Hira. So one can understand Judah's hesitancy to give up his last son as a husband to Tamar. God already judged two of her previous husbands. Judah essentially vowed he would not give Shelah as husband to Tamar as custom and righteousness demanded, but he would simply put her off on the issue. So Tamar went and dwelt in her father's house, and this was no place for a young childless widow to be. When there were additional brothers in her husband's family, who could fulfill the obligation they owed to their late brother. None of this was the fault of Tamar. All the blame belonged to the sons of Judah. So coming down through 12 through 14, Judah's wife dies and Tamar realizes Judah will never give his last son to fulfill the obligation to her. And now in the process of time, the daughter of Shua, Judah's wife, died. And Judah was comforted and he went up to his sheep shears at Timnah. He and his friend here, the Adolamite. And it was told Tamar saying, look, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. So so she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil and wrapped herself and sat in an open place which was on the way to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown and she was not given to him as a wife. 
So Tamar did not want to face what would be a very difficult existence in that culture, or in any culture, life with no husband or children. And Tamar didn't have the option of just finding another man to marry. She was under the headship of her father-in-law, Judah, and he had to give her a husband. He determined whom and when she could marry. So coming to verses 15 through 18, Tamar sets a trap for Judah, and he has sex with her. So when Judah saw her, he thought she was a harlot because she had covered her face. Then he turned to her by the way and said, Please let me come in to you, for he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. Sin is pretty prevalent. So she said, What will you give me that you may come in to me? And he said, I will send a young goat from the flock. So she said, Will you give me a pledge till you send it? Then he said, What pledge shall I give to you? So she said, Your signet and cord and your staff that is in your hand. Then he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. So after negotiating the price, Tamar demanded a pledge of future payment of the agreed-upon price, right, a young goat. When Tamar conceived, it certainly was not intended by Judah, but it was definitely planned by both Tamar and God. So Tamar felt she would have to take matters into her own hands if she were to be granted the rights of the Leverite custom. Pretending to be one of the uh, Kadeshot, religious prostitutes, she tricked Judah into having illicit relations with her. So coming down to verses 19 through 23, Tamar disappears. So she arose and went away and laid aside her veil and put on the garments of her widowhood. And Judah sent the young goat by the hand of his friend, the Adullamite, to receive his pledge from the woman's hand. But he did not find her. Then he asked the men of that place, saying, Where is the harlot who was openly by the roadside? And they said, There was no harlot in this place. So he returned to Judah and said, I cannot find her. Also the men of the place said, There was no harlot in this place. Then Judah said, Let her take them for herself, lest we be shamed. For I sent this young goat, and you have not found her. So... Judah sent a friend to pay Tamar and to retrieve the pledge he left with her. Because Tamar disappeared, he gave up the pledge, leaving it with her. So in pledge that he would send a goat for payment, he left his seal, which hung suspended from a cord around his neck, and his staff with her. Bracelets, including armlets, were worn by men as well as women among the Hebrews. But the Hebrew word here rendered bracelets is everywhere else translated lace or ribbon. So again, Jacob's family experienced deception, this time by his Canaanite daughter-in-law. The crime of adultery was anciently punished in many places by burning. Uh, Leviticus chapter 21 verse 9, Judges chapter 15 verse 6, Jeremiah chapter 29 verses 22 through 23. So coming down to verses 24 through 26, Tamar is vindicated and Judah is reproved. And it came to pass about three months after that Judah was told, saying, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has played the harlot. Furthermore, she is with child by harlotry. So Judah said, Bring her out, let her be burned. When she was brought out, she sent to her father-in-law, saying, By the man to whom these belong, I am with child. And she said, Please determine whose these are, the signet and cord and staff. So Judah acknowledged them and said, She has been more righteous than I, because I did not give her to Shalah, my son, and he never knew her again. So Judah found it easy to pass judgment on someone who sinned just as he sinned, without passing the same judgment on himself. 
herself. Tamar acted shrewdly and vindicated herself against the charge of harlotry. She made the logical appeal of noting that the man who hired her was just as guilty as she was. And, however, even Judah could see through the real issue. He was at fault for not providing for Tamar a son through his last son, Shalah. So when she proved by the seal, cord, and staff that he was the guilty partner, Tamar had won the right to be the mother of Judah's children, though in a deceitful way. Her action was desperate and risky, and she thus appears in the Messianic family tree in Matthew chapter 1, verse 3. So coming down to verses 27 through 30, Tamar gives birth to twins, Perez and Zerah. Now it came to pass at the time for giving birth that, behold, twins were in the womb. And so it was when she was giving birth that the one put out his hand, and the midwife took a scarlet thread and bound it on his hand, saying, This one came out first. Then it happened, as he drew back his hand, that his brother came out unexpectedly. And she said, How did you break through this breach be upon you? Therefore, his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out, who had the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. Matthew chapter 1 verse 3 and Luke chapter 3 verse 33 each list Perez as an ancestor of Jesus the Messiah. God took the son of this ungodly situation and put him in the family line of the Messiah, despite the fact that neither Judah nor Tamar were the examples of godliness. This is a glorious example of grace. God chose them despite their works to be in the line of the Messiah and to have their role in God's plan of redemption. This chapter again reminds us of the corruption and often unspiritual character of the family of Israel. And his brother came out with a scarlet thread on his hand. The secondborn Zerah had a red thread on his wrist, but the firstborn Perez would be found in the messianic line. So God gave Tamar twins, and the line of Judah continued because of her. It is as if the oracle concerning Jacob's ruling over over his older brother in Genesis 27 verse 29 was being relived in the line of Judah. What was so significant was the connection with Judah's dealing with Joseph in Genesis 37 verses 26 and 28. He and his brother sold their younger brother into Egypt thinking they could thwart God's design that the elder brothers would serve the younger Joseph. Yet in Judah's own family, despite his attempts to hinder Tamar's marriage, God's will worked out in a poignant confirmation of the principle that the elder would serve the younger. If you study Genesis chapter 38 in Hebrew, you will find a letter sequence interval of every 49 letters detailing the family tree of King David in chronological order and written in the days of Moses. Moses was to have written the Torah somewhere estimated around 1500 BC. And so the first one that comes up is Boaz, then Ruth, then Obed, then Yeshe, or Jesse, then David. Boaz, Ruth, Obed, Jesse, David. All in 49 letter intervals and all are in chronological order. And this is what I like to call the fingerprint by the Holy Spirit, that even the very text itself defies time. If it was structured any other way, it would ruin chapter 38. So it further validates that that genealogy is true. God has ways of speaking to us from outside the time domain. So looking at the book of Ruth, we're going to have a synopsis here. The story of Ruth is after Joshua conquers the land and in the days the judges ruled. The book of Ruth is the ultimate love story, both at the literary level and at the prophetic, personal level. It is one of the most significant books for the church, giving us the insights into the role of the kinsman redeemer. And it's the essential prerequisite to understanding the book of Revelation. So Ruth chapter 1, you're going to have love's 
resolved. And this is where Ruth will cleave to Naomi. In chapter 2, you'll have love's response, and that's where Ruth gleans and takes care of Naomi. In chapter 3, you'll have the threshing floor scene, and you'll have love's request. In chapter 4, you have love's reward, and that's redemption of both the land and bride, love's reward. So the famine in chapter 1 drives the family from Bethlehem to Moab. Elimelech, God is my king, and Naomi means pleasant. Have two sons named Malan, unhealthy, to blot out, and Kilio, which means puny or to perish. Naomi deters daughters-in-law Orpah, Fawn, and Ruth, desirable, from the following her back to Bethlehem after her husband and sons die. But Ruth stays with Naomi. Ruth chapter 1 verses 16 through 17, and Ruth said, Entreat me not to leave thee, or to return from following after thee. For whither thou goest, I will go, and where thou lodgest, I I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people, and thy God my God. Where thou diest, I will die, and there I will be buried. The Lord do so to me, and more also, if aught but death part thee and me. The law of gleaning is found in Leviticus chapter 19 verses 9 and 10, and Deuteronomy chapter 24 verses 19 through 21, and it was a provision for the destitute, the poor. Ruth happens upon the field of Boaz, and his name means, in him is strength name given to one of the pillars in the temple. Ruth is introduced to Boaz by an unnamed servant. Boaz instructs his reapers to leave handfuls on purpose when they are gleaning from his fields. He provides protection and is a type of goel in Hebrew means a kinsman redeemer. The law of redemption is found in Leviticus 25 verses 47 through 50 and the law of Leverite marriage is found in Deuteronomy chapter 25 verses 5 through 10. The gleaning is when those that were were poor and could not fend for themselves, the farmers would leave the corners of the farm fields uh, and the edges so that the poor could come through. It was almost like a system of welfare. And so Ruth is gleaning these fields because she's serving Naomi, who is a picture of Israel in all of this. And Ruth is a picture of the Gentile following Israel. And then Boaz is a type of Jesus Christ. He's the kinsman redeemer. So the threshing floor scene in Ruth chapter 3, Naomi recognizes an opportunity for the redemption of her land and for a new life for Ruth. She instructs Ruth on what to do and and Ruth approaches Boaz. In Ruth chapter 3 verses 8 and 9, And it came to pass at midnight that the man was afraid and turned himself, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. And he said, Who art thou? And she answered, I am Ruth, thine handmaid. Spread therefore thy skirt over thine handmaid, for thou art a near kinsman. Ruth approaches Boaz to fulfill the role of a goel, but there is a near kinsman in the way. He gives her six measures of barley, which is six, you work six days and rest on the seventh. He will not rest until he makes it work, is what he's saying. And this was a code for Naomi. When Ruth brings back this six measures of barley, it is code in the custom to work six days and rest on the seventh. So he wouldn't rest until he made it work that Naomi would get this message understanding what it meant. So the redemption comes in chapter 4 and Boaz confronts the nearer kinsman and he is willing to redeem the property, but he is not willing to take Ruth as a bride. He yields his shoe to relieve the obligation. Boaz purchases the land for Naomi, a type of Israel, and he purchases Ruth, a type of the church, as his bride. Notice the nameless servant uh, in the book of Ruth, also being a type of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is always a nameless servant. And so when we get
get Christ, we have the Holy Spirit and dwell in us. It's the same relationship with the Holy Spirit brings the bride to Christ. So a strange prophecy at the marriage celebration of Boaz and Ruth, there is a prophecy in the wedding toast. May your house be like Perez in Deuteronomy chapter 23 verse 2. The laws of the land stated that an illegitimate son could not inherit until the 10th generation. Perez was an illegitimate son of Tamar in Genesis chapter 38. If you study the family line of King David, he is the 10th generation from Perez. You have Perez, Hezron, Ram, Amenadab, Shashon, Salmon, Boaz, Obed, Jesse, David. So a Goel or kinsman redeemer must be a kinsman to be able to perform. He must be willing and he must assume all the obligations. Boaz means Lord of the Harvest and the kinsman redeemer. He's a type of Jesus Christ. Naomi means Israel. She had to be out of the land in order to bring Ruth into the picture, just like Israel was scattered in the land after the temple fell. Ruth is a type of Gentile bride. Some observations in order to bring Ruth to Naomi, Naomi had to be exiled from her land. What the law could not do, Grace did. Ruth does not replace Naomi. Ruth learns of Boaz's ways through Naomi. Naomi meets Boaz through Ruth. No matter how much Boaz loved Ruth, he had to await her move, much like God will wait for us. Boaz, not Ruth, confronts the nearer kinsman. The book of Ruth is always read at the Feast of Pentecost on Shavuot. You can't really understand Revelation chapter 5 without understanding the book of Ruth. You and I are also beneficiaries of a love story that was written in blood on a wooden cross erected in Judea almost 2,000 years ago. And there are many prophetic undercurrents in the scripture. David's lineage was encrypted in the Hebrew text of Genesis 38 and 49 letter intervals. I would note 7 times 7 is 49. David's lineage was also prophesied in the time of the judges in the book of Ruth. The wedding toast prophecy of the 10th generation after Perez from Ruth 4 verse 12 and 18 through 22, bastards are excluded until the 10th generation in Deuteronomy chapter 23 verse 2 and how accurate God is with just nailing these genealogies. And just to go back over it again, David is the 10th in line. So you had Perez, Hezron, Ram, Aminadab, Nashon, Salmon, Boaz, Obed, Jesse, and David. So the laws of the land stated an illegitimate son could not inherit until the 10th generation. David inherited quite a bit as we find out in 1st and 2nd Samuel. That will tie up chapter 38 for today. It's going to be a little bit of a short one. Next time we will get into Genesis chapter 39 and this is where we're going to have Joseph is imprisoned and we'll take it from there. If there's any improvements just shoot me a message or let me know. I want to thank everybody for taking time to listen in.